Malachi chapter 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this eternal text which was breathed by your Spirit from all eternity. Lord, may you apply it to our lives. May you apply it to our souls. And may we live it out for your glory. Please be with me today, and O Spirit of Christ, would you descend and illuminate our hearts and minds so that we might be your children. In Christ's name, amen. Well, most American newspapers, uh, we have something that happens almost once a week. It's called the obituary section. It's the time during the week that the newspaper announces to the community deaths that happen. However, in 1888, a random thing happened. You see, a living man got to read his own obituary. Now, that doesn't happen too often, but it happened to this man. And you might recognize his name. His name was Alfred Nobel, and he was the inventor of dynamite. And the reporter had gotten confused after the recent death of Alfred's brother. And listen to what the obituary stated. The merchant of death is now dead. And it went on to say, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Well, any man would be disturbed about this circumstance to read about their own death, but for Alfred, the shock was overwhelming because he saw himself now as the rest of the world saw himself as the dynamite king. You see, he was known for that because he was this great industrialist who built uh, this explosive, and he made a lot of money from it. Because at the turn of 1800s, dynamites was necessary for all the building of our roads, and it was used in weaponry. But for him, he saw it as a tool to help mankind. The public did not see that. And as a result, it began to change the way he began to think about how he wanted to be remembered. So on November 27, 1895, at the Swedish Norwegian Club in Paris, Nobel signed his last will and testament to set aside the bulk of his estate to be given to the Nobel Peace Prizes to be awarded annually without nationality or distinction. He left in the 1890s the equivalent of $4,200,000 plus $1,000 to be given away. Now, $4 million in our day and age is not a lot. It is a lot, but it's not a lot. But in the 1890s, 
I dare say four million came at a much steeper price. You see, though his, his agenda had been changed, what, what Nobel wanted is he wanted people to remember that the reason why he came about with dynamite was not to kill people, but to help people. And now we have the Nobel Peace Prizes to be given and uh, award those who make advances in science, politics, or society. The prize is used to remember the great exploits of individuals and their respected careers. Well, today we have a text that talks about how people will be remembered by God and how He records people's names down. And I believe Malachi wanted us to remember, for us, for the people at that time, and for us to remember how God would remember them. And so this morning we're going to look at two groups. One who had a self-serving condition, the other who possessed a God-focused condition, and how these two groups were differently motivated. <clears throat> we'll begin first with the self-serving condition. Malachi began by saying these words, You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Well, God begins with a lament. He says, your words have been hard against me. You see, God's describing the words of the people here. And he, Malachi does this to sort of grab our attention of God's current displeasure of the people. What was being said about God and what was going on. And indeed, it is a stunning statement for God to say, your words have been hard against me. You see, they're mad at God. And they're displeased with how God is doing things. But notice what they say. They have an excuse. They say it's vain to serve the Lord. In fact, those who should get bad things are getting good things. And we who supposedly are your children are getting the brunt of not, not blessings, but in fact, challenges. And they have a self-serving cry. They say it's vain to worship God. It's vain. Well, the Hebrew word for vain can refer to a number of things, but specifically it refers to a worthless, purposeless, pointless, or useless idea. It's, it's unreliable. And can you imagine how callous that statement is to say to God that you are unreliable? That you are worthless? That you are no good? They're frustrated with God. And they're upset with Him. But I think it exposes something that's been going on in their heart and we've been seeing it through the book of Malachi. They have charges against God, but these charges come and they just say them, but there's no introspection of their heart. And what Malachi does again and again is they say, he said, you have said this, but God says back to them this. And he points out the errors that are going on. This charge here before them is they are saying to God that you are as unreliable as the glutton's plea that he will not overeat. They charge God with the very unfaithfulness that God charges him with and cha charges them with in chapter 2. So again, Malachi reminds them that you're blind to your own faults. You don't see what's going on. There's this old mentality of tick for tact. If this is the way I'm going to be treated, God, 
then that should excuse me for how I'm treating you. And so we see this bitterness in them. Now, dear friends, it's not a new thing to question God. In fact, there's other places in Scripture where people do question God and say, God, what's going on? One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73. And you may remember that psalm. That's the psalm of Asaph. And Asaph talks about how frustrated he is that the rich have all these blessings and yet he has all these struggles. And why is it they're getting good and they're healthy and their kids are doing great and everything in my life is going ruinous? He probably says some other words with that as well. How frustrated he is. And then this statement is given in Psalm 73. Then I entered the house of the Lord. And all of a sudden, Asa's perspective changes. Because he goes on to say, now I realize what their end is, and I realize what my end is going to be. It is going to be radically different. You see... These people were complaining, but there was no hope of change in the future. It was just how bad we have it. And this isn't right. And they're frustrated and they're angry. Malachi goes on to transform this and say, there's another group out there. Another group that had a God-serving focus. And he calls this group, did you catch what he calls them? Those that fear the Lord. You see, right from the beginning... We're seeing the, the true uh, heart measure of what's going on in this first group. They don't fear God. Even though they're saying all these things, it's a veiled attempt. It's saying, God, you don't care. I'm doing all these things. But really, are you doing all those things? You see, what Malachi says is there's no fear going on in their hearts. It's not a, a cry of, I don't understand. I'm frustrated. Lord, I'm trusting you to help. No, it's the cry of just grumbling and complaining. I don't like this. This is mad. I'm going to kick the dirt. It's all bad. And this is all wrong. And this isn't fair. And you almost see them crossing their arms and with a frown on their face. It's sort of like the children of Israel when they came out of the promised land. All they did was grumble and complain. And God exposed their hearts. There wasn't a sense of grumbling and complaining, but yet, Lord, I'm wrestling. I'm trying to seek You. I'm trying to trust you. No, it's we're just not getting the justice we deserve. And this is wrong. And you can almost see that clenched fist. Well, Malachi says, no, there's a different group of people. And he's saying to the Israelites, brothers and sisters, fellow Israelites, these are the people that God wants us to be. And as those that feared the Lord. So he begins by a description of what these people are like. And notice a couple of things he says. He says, in general, they're fears of God. They feared the Lord. But he says something about their particulars. And it's in verse 16. They spoke often to one another. They had real community. And they thought and esteemed upon God's name. So let's answer a question. What does it mean to fear God? Well, it's not a natural fear. Like danger or a flood or a wreck or calamity. You know, sometimes when my boy is about ready to do something and I grab him, or if you have a child and prevent them from something going on, that's a natural fear. But the fear of God is a little different. It's unnatural in the sense that we're giving honor to a God, which we don't in our own nature want to do. It's not superstition. People often fear a black cat crossing their path or not having a lucky rabbit's foot. That's not that. Nor is it a carmel fear. In other words, they 
change just so they, they can please the people that's around them. They have a fear of instead of doing what's right and honoring the God who inspects a person's heart, they fear so they may please man and may please the poles. I like what William Gurnell said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. This is the fear uh, that is not the true fear of God. The true fear of God realizes there's one who inspects our heart, who sees all, who knows all. That is the true fear. And I think the fear that Malachi talks about, and I appreciated one of my mentors talking to me about it, it's not the fear that a criminal has before a judge completely. It is that, and yes, we are guilty before God, and we stand condemned. But it's more like the fear that a child has to their parent or to their father. There's a respect given because this dad takes care of them and they are the one put over them. These people, Malachi tells us, has a healthy respect, a healthy fear of God. So what did these God-fearers do? Well, the first thing Malachi tells us, they spoke to one another. And so the question then bears us, what did they speak about? Well, let's talk a couple of things. First, to inform. When we fear God and we speak to one another, it is to pass the truths of God onto one another. Just a minute ago, when we gave thanksgiving, there was also truths being shared about our God. He is good. He is gracious. He gives us things that we don't even deserve. These are blessings. And so there's a communication to one another. The Shema says, talk to your children about God when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. There's this transformation of information. Also, when we speak together as children of God, we correct and we rebuke. You remember the old proverb is, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I am so thankful, I'm sure many of you all as well, that God put people in my life who gave me the truth, even though they knew I didn't like it, but they knew it was exactly what I needed to hear. Sometimes truths cut, but they cut as a, as a surgeon's scalpel to heal rather than to hurt. And that is the goal of the church, is to sharpen one another. Oftentimes, the Puritan pastor Thomas Watson, when commenting on this path passage talks about how the devil likes to deceive us in this and has us to hold things in. When I was a campus minister, I often had a couple of guys in my group that were just complete introverts. And until you got them talking, you really found out what was going on in their head and thinking because they were just quiet. They wouldn't want to share. But when that communication started happening, you could see what was going on in a person's soul. People who fear God communicate, they talk, they interact. And it is that communication that challenges us. It exposes the lies that we may be believing or any false teachings that we might be in our hearts so that someone who knows the Lord a little better might be able to correct or to act on. Another thing they do is they support one another when they speak to one another. I love the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says... To the church there, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. There's a sense of community of supporting one another. And when we speak with one another, we hear what's going on. And we want to act and interact in their lives. We want to say, hey, can I come over and help you with your car that's not working because I know something about it and I realize you don't. There's this communication going on. 
But also besides speaking to one another, these God-fearers did, they esteemed God's name. You know, honestly, I can't think of a more... Well, there are plenty of things, but this is a very important thing in our day and age. God's name has become so completely tarnished. OMG or JC has become the terms given when someone is frustrated or angered or upset or they don't like what's going on. But Malachi says, these people who fear God, no, they esteem God's name. They realize that God's name is holy. And they realize that God said very clearly in the second commandment to not take His name in vain. Because He will clearly act. He will not hold a man innocent, but He will hold them guilty. The people who fear, fear God fear His name. And also when we fear His name, we also want to think correctly about Him. You see, to know God's name and to know Him perfectly. Jeremiah gives this statement in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. He says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the mighty man not boast in his might. But let him who boasts boast in this that he knows me, that I am the Lord God who practices love and kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. He delights in them because that man knows him. He knows his name and he knows who he is. You see, when I say, I know my wife Amber, I know who she is by her name. Her name represents her character and her being and who she is and her intricacies. When someone says your name, they know who you are by that identification. And so Malachi says to us, these people who fear God knew God's name. They knew who He was and that He cared for them. Also, esteeming God and fear also rebukes us that our thoughts are vile. It helps us to introspect Him. To esteem His name means He knows what's going on in my head and heart. And He wants to know what's going on in there. And a person who wants to fear God and esteem His name purifies their thoughts because they want to be pleasing to them. Thomas Watson also commented on this. He said, Oh, how much contemplative wickedness in this world. Tremble at sinful thoughts. We startle at gross sin, but we are not troubled so much by sinful thoughts. And then he goes on to remind that the reason the Jews killed Christ at the time was envy. Envy is an internal thing. It's something someone thinks about. And so these things, uh, Malachi is reminding the people to purify inside and out. You see, thinking about, rightly about God helps us to fear Him, but it also does another thing. It helps us to enjoy Him. Because when we think rightly about God, we can filter this whole world. And we can say with Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God, how inscrutable are His ways. We look at Him and we can see that His works are at work. And they're for good and not for calamity. So one might ask the question, what are the blessings of fearing God? Well, first, the fear of God is mixed with love. God is not like a, a, 
an uncompassionate judge who just deals out justice as he pleases. And he's gone lord over creation with an iron fist. You know, our God is also the husband of the church. And just as a husband cares for his bride, so too our God is a husband to us. And he loves us with an immeasurable love. It is our fear of God that purifies our love for Him because we see who He is, that He cares for us. The fear of God is mixed with love. It is also mixed with faith. It is the fear of God that as a believer we know that we do not deserve forgiveness, but it is our faith to God that we hope that our sins are forgiven. As David said, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Fear of God is also mixed with hope. Psalm 33, 18 says, The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His unfailing love. When we fear God, it is mixed with hope because we know that He is at work. And He will not deal with us as we deserve. He deals with us good and blessing and encouragement. So we do not fear Him because we cannot hope in Him, but we fear Him because we have hope in Him. You see, the fear of God strengthens us to be bold in the most degenerate of times. I like what Watson said, The evil ones sin and fear not, but the godly fear and sin not. You see, the more we fear God's justice, the greater we hope for His mercy. That is the God whom we serve Their hope was in God because they feared Him. Because they knew He was benevolent and good. The fear of God also leads man to true wisdom and knowledge. You've heard Solomon's great quote, The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and understanding. If you don't fear God, then you do not have the right understanding on the world. It's just that simple. You're a fool. Solomon says... To have true understanding, to have true wisdom, it must have the fear of God. If you take out the fear of God, then you do not have true understanding. And you do not have true wisdom. It may be worldly wisdom, and it may have some good insights. But true wisdom, true understanding, always begins with the fear of God. And also notice lastly too, the fear of God is mixed with action. Remember Daniel you read the book of Daniel and it talks about the battles of going on in the holy lands. And, and Daniel says, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. You see, people who fear God are not afraid because of, of the world. They know the one person they have to please. And if they're pleasing Him, they can move and act freely. Why is it that we have... People like Martin Luther who feared God and knew that the very king who could exterminate his life in one word would say, here I stand, so help me God. It is because they could stand before Him and they knew that God is the one who calls all in account. If they are pleasing God, then they can move freely. They can move boldly. The fear of God constrains the fear of man. When I first preached this sermon uh, back at the church I used to pastor, I read a blog spot about an Anglican church in Phoenix who wanted to remove the Lord language from worship. 
And here's what they said. The Lord has become, the word Lord has become a loaded word conveying hierarchical power over things, which in what we have recorded in our sacred text is not what Jesus understood himself to be, said St. Philip's associate rector Susan Anderson Smith. In the strictest Christian sense, Lord comes from the Greek word kairos, which the Greek culture in the first century understood in different ways, says Anderson Smith. Evidence suggests the word was used in talking about Jesus as the fullest embodied revelation of God. But it had a lot less to do with a hierarchy than what the word means now, she said. Well, that is absolutely absurd. People knew what Lord meant back in that time. They knew what a king and a queen meant. They knew order and structure. And they knew, too, even a lot more in our day and age, that if you said harm against the king, that meant your throat. They certainly knew what the word Lord meant. J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary, said these words about the text. The words of this text with the Solomon inculcation of fear are also a ringing denunciation of fear. The fear of him is balanced by fear not. The fear of God is here made a way of overcoming the fear of man. And the heroic centuries of Christian history have provided abundant testimonies of its efficaciousness. With the fear of God before their eyes, the heroes of the faith have boldly stood before kings and governors and executioners and said, Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That is what the fear of God does. So how does it affect the godly? Or what good does it bring to those who fear Him? Notice what the Lord does for you and I when we fear Him. He he says first, He paid attention and He heard them. There are times when God is silent, when we do not see or perceive His activity. However, that does not mean He is deaf. God hears us. And He hears you and hears me when we fear Him. Whether it means doing something honorable at our work which no one else would see, or helping someone out, or taking a stand when it might cost you. God hears you and He knows your concerns. Next, the Lord records that the God-fearers are written in a book of remembrance. Now this begs a question, doesn't it? Why would God need a book of remembrance? I mean, He is God, right? God knows all. He sees all. Why would He need to write a book of remembrance? Well, I don't think it's so much for Him as it is for us. You see, God writes a book of remembrance to encourage us to good deeds. You know, I don't know about you, but oftentimes in life we can get on the idea, we just get so focused on what we do wrong and God records those things. But dear brother and sister, He records just as much the bad I mean, sorry, just as much as the good as he does the bad. He writes those things down. He sees when your heart wants to do something right for your spouse and they may get it all wrong. He sees when you go out of your way to care for someone, though it costs something else. He sees those things and he writes it down. He's going to see you here in a minute when we partake of this Lord's Supper, how you and your heart want to make sure that you're right with God. He sees those things and He writes them down. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. 
when we go through trials and temptations and all those things, but we say we're going to fear God and honor Him, He writes it down. And He writes it down because He wants to honor us. Lastly, He says a couple other things here about rewarding them. He owns them. Notice what He says, they shall be mine. Like a sheep spoken, by the, spoken of by the good shepherd, so we will be His and nothing Brothers and sisters, nothing can snatch us from His hand. He honors them by calling them His treasured possession. You are treasured. I am treasured. And though sometimes we may not feel it, the truth is that He does treasure us. The great minister John Chrysostom said, All men are ambitious of honor, but true honor comes from God. You see, we are called His treasure, and we will not experience the fullness of that blessing this side of eternity. But once we get on the other side of eternity, brothers and sisters, that treasure possession will come abundantly true. Abundantly true. A place where there will be no more sorrow and sin, where joy will reign, and we will get to behold Jesus Christ for all eternity. And as each day as eternity goes on, we will continue to grow in adoration of praise for the eternal being. Because each day for us, there is another layer of that onion which will be peeled off and we will see Christ's glory even more and more. I believe this text is given to us, Malachi says, to invigorate our hearts to long for godliness and to seek and fear in God and to long for our eternal home where all these things that we deal with and challenges and tests and trials will be done away with and we'll be in perfect joy with Him. My second year in ministry when I was on staff at Campus Crusade for Christ, I had a group of young men. And uh, I took them, to a Bible st- or took them to a graveyard at First Presbyterian Church down in Columbia, South Carolina. Now, First Pres is a pretty historic church. In fact, one of the things they do is if you're a pastor there, you end up getting buried in the graveyard right next to the church. And back in those days, when people uh, buried someone, they just didn't give their name and dates. They usually wrote a statement about the character of who that person was. And I asked them a question. I said, when you die, what will your epitaph say? What is it going to read? Well, in the Bible, there's a man who gets a tremendous label for his name. This is the only thing said about this guy. And I'd like to share it with you. His name was Hananiah. Only one verse is given to him, but it's a tremendous compliment. Nehemiah came back to rebuilding a Jerusalem and he was looking for leaders. And he said this quote, one verse. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the commander of fortresses in charge of Jerusalem. And listen to this. For he was a faithful man and he feared God more than many. Nothing else is told to us about this man except he was a man who feared God more than many. My prayer for you and for me is that when we pass away, that would be something true of each of our epitaphs. That we would be a people, that we would be a person that fear God more than many. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the tremendous reminders that are here before us in this text to live for your glory, both warnings and encouragements. And Lord, I would ask, no matter which side of the fence we're on, and usually it's both, Lord, that we would uh, forego 
those sinful means and renew our fear of you. And though maybe some of us may be struggling, wondering if you hear, wondering if you see, may we be encouraged that you are the God who records our name, that we are your treasured possession, and that you care for us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.